Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Sorry, this one is a bit delayed. Although I should probably stop apologizing when I don't release things exactly in a week because I think sticking to a perfect schedule on that is never something I'm going to be able to do. And hopefully you guys are okay with that. Especially being on the road, man. Routine is um, a distant memory. Um, definitely not something that happens. And it's good. It's good to not have a routine. It keeps things fresh and interesting. But man, when it comes to working or getting any sort of long-term project done in any sort of pr a productive way... Uh, yeah, forget about it. One of those things that's definitely sacrificed by moving around every day, almost every day. Um, I am really excited about today's episode. It is with uh, the Parker family. I think it was the first time that I ever interviewed more than one person at a time, which seems kind of surprising, but I think that's true. Um, sat down with the whole family. Three of them spoke. It was the parents, uh, Bill and Kelly, and their daughter, Chloe. They run a farm that follows a holistic management, regenerative agriculture type system in Gunnison. Um, I have spent a lot of time in Gunnison, as I've mentioned a million times. My grandparents have a cabin uh, between Gunnison and Crested Butte, um, but I hadn't known anything about Parker Pastures prior to uh, doing this interview with them. If you listen to episode eight of the show, I interviewed Bobby Gill, who works for the Savory Institute. Um... If you haven't listened to that episode and you're planning on listening to this one, I definitely recommend listening to that one either first or just together after this. Um, Bobby works at the Savory Institute, as I mentioned, and he introduced me to uh, Bill and Kelly. So the Savory Institute was founded by Alan Savory, who um, basically was on a mission to figure out, figure out how to uh, solve and reverse desertification. And what he came up with was a system of practices called holistic management, where humans and animals and crops were all working together in a way that is regenerative for the planet. Um, and so I talked to uh, Bobby, uh, but I really wanted to talk to people on the ground, so people who are actually farmers working in this way. Um, and so he had mentioned when we spoke that there was a savory hub actually in Gunnison, and I knew I was planning on going to Gunnison, so finally got there and... Uh, was really awesome meeting this family. They were really cool people, and I think you guys will enjoy this conversation. Um, I haven't spoken about it a lot, I guess, on the podcast, but uh, regenerative agriculture is something I am really passionate about, and I think one of the topics that uh, 
my opinions on are quite taboo and politically incorrect and misunderstood. Um, and so I am definitely motivated to kind of open up the conversation about these things and share them with you guys and hopefully help everyone see things in a much broader way. Um, I think a, a huge goal of the podcast is to address issues in a nuanced gray area type of way. Um, so hopefully this episode accomplishes this along with all the others. Um, I'm not going to babble on too much today. Um, I'm actually going to be going back to LA for a week on Saturday, knocking out a bunch of remote interviews while I'm there, um, taking care of some things at home and then flying back into Colorado and sort of finishing out the rest of the trip through, um, maybe New Mexico. I was going to go down there. Things change at the drop of a hat. You guys, <laughs> any plan I try to make just doesn't stay. Um, so yeah, maybe hitting New Mexico, uh, but definitely going back home through Utah, going to see the Grand Canyon, which I've never seen before, um, and then go back home to LA for a couple months starting at the beginning of October. So four months on the road went real fast, real fast. Um, not many announcements. I think I mentioned last time I'll probably be doing a solo episode soon. Um, so if you are a listener and you have a question for me or a topic you'd like me to discuss or a topic I've discussed before that you'd like me to elaborate on, feel free to email me, send me a message. Um, if you are a Patreon supporter, I give you guys first dibs. Uh, so be sure to get those in either send me a message through Patreon or, uh, email anyakates at gmail.com. And if you would like to help support the show, um, head on over to your podcast app and click five stars. You can do it right now. It takes two seconds, not even. Uh, you can leave a review. Um, you can hit subscribe, which actually helps the podcast show up more in search results. Um, you can always head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Anya Cates, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Throw me a few bucks a month. Uh, that helps me keep the show in the air. Um, but mostly tell your friends, share episodes that you think are valuable or that someone else would enjoy. And I uh, greatly appreciate it. Glad you guys are out there. Glad is an understatement. I uh, I love that you guys are out there. This community is blossoming and growing. And um, yeah, really nothing has made me more happier than that. So thank you. Enjoy the episode. And I will catch you on the other side. All right, so I am here in Gunnison with a whole family. It's the first. Actually, I haven't even had more than one person, I don't think, on the show. So we've got four people at the at the table: mm -hmm. <laughs> Bill and Kelly, right? Mm -hmm. Oliver, is that your name? And Chloe, um, and they um, own and run Parker Pastures. Uh, and this is a follow-up, uh, if you guys haven't listened to the episode I did with Bobby Gill from the Savory Institute, he introduced me to these guys. Um, and I really wanted to talk more about regenerative agriculture and sort of hear from people who are in it day in and day out and sort of have that conversation. So I'd love to kind of first, I guess, hear from you both how you got into farming. Was this something that you were doing before you met? Is it in your family? I'll go first. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so Bill and I both grew up in Gunnison okay. and graduated in the same class. So we've known each other for a long time. Um, my dad was in education, but coming from Ohio, he loved John Wayne. And so he always had a dream of ranching. Hmm. So he and my mom saved up money and purchased a farmette up the Ohio Creek Valley. So about 40 acres. And so 
we had some cows and I did 4-H and owned sheep and I just came out of the womb with a love of animals. And I went away to university and studied biology and botany and zoology and came to have a real love for plants. Um, and then Bill, who will tell you his story, but he introduced me to holistic management. And as a uh, sort of with a science-minded background, I read through the text and it just put a lot of pieces together for me. Mm. And, yeah, just made a lot of sense biologically. Yeah, and I assume like because you had this background with animals and plants that like sort of all of those things came together mm-hmm. in yeah. a way. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, and uh, my dad, we we I grew up on a ranch until I was 8 and then in the 80s was a very tough time for farmers and ranchers because the interest rates were over 20%, so if you had debt on anything, it was killer and so any and the cattle market was pretty low and so um my dad actually had to sell his his ranching operation and then we moved closer to town and then my uncle who lived about 4 hours away in Rifle Colorado I went to work for him when I was a teenager and he was a very early adopter of holistic management to Alan Savory and being one of these guys that wasn't scared to break the paradigm and try something different and and I was able to really see his land transform, uh, like places where nobody thought grass should grow, grass was growing. Um, so I got to see it firsthand as a young man, and then he sold his ranch. And so I kind of went on, I went to college, wondered what I was going to do, and eventually decided, you know, agriculture is where my passion is. Um, I studied agriculture at Colorado State University, and is very anti-holistic management, I guess you could say. The program. Uh, yep. Mm. Um, so that was a little bit difficult for me. I still learned and appreciated my professors and the people I got to know. But um, there was definitely, and I think it goes back to what you said earlier, you know, if, if, if somebody's been studying something a certain way for a long time, it's very hard for them to look at a totally radical idea. And at the time, holistic management was pretty radical. Um, it still is. And so, um, after college we worked, Kelly and I got married and then we worked on a a couple different big ranching operations. The second one was a holistically managed operation and we were there for like three or four years and decided we were smart enough to start on our own which we weren't. <laughs> and uh, and we also really wanted to come back home to Gunnison. And so that was 10 or 11 years ago, 12 years ago now. Um, oh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think that the most exciting thing for us is that um, we can use our livestock. We make our living from our livestock, but our livestock are tools to regenerate the earth. And, you know, we definitely know the emergency of regenerating the earth as opposed to sustaining it because all the earth's resources are in a degraded state. Um, I don't get pessimistic about that at all because I know that we have the solutions to change that. Um, there's major obstacles in our way, but, but the, the knowledge, the experience is global. It's available. It's happening. Um, 
and so yeah we're we're excited to be a part of that what about you chloe Did, were you always interested in getting involved or were you <laughs> had yeah. some skepticism yeah so those are my two amazing parents and then i've always kind of always loved like the cat animals and the baby lambs and the baby calves and then when I, a couple, well, I guess it was like five or seven years ago, we did have a bunch more sheep and a different breed of sheep than we do now, and so my parents decided to sell them, and I kept a small flock that I eventually grew and grew and grew to then eventually become a grass-fed lamb business, so that's kind of been, the sheep's kind of been more on my side, but then I've also, like, seen the cows and the sheep working together, so I'm more of and but yeah I and I believe in like the regenerative and the holistic management because I've seen like the changes in every aspect from the land to the animals to the people yeah and you're 16 yeah right? I'm yeah. 16 do you have friends your age that are involved in this type of work as well are you <laughs> no not really yeah yeah the ranching community around here is very traditional hmm like raising animals in the traditional way or yeah just like um kind of the not using necessarily holistic management like they're all i mean pretty good managers but they don't like use the regenerative model and the holistic management so we've kind i mean there's that's why it's also it's really good to have networking of right. from across the globe right. of different people that, but we're kind of like the oddballs out in our community. <laughs> yeah. So let's, for people that aren't familiar, can one of you guys sort of talk about, like, broad strokes, what the difference is between this sort of traditional approach and holistic management? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, because your podcast is pretty broad range, and I think holistic management oftentimes gets put in a box that it's for agriculture. Mm. Um, that is kind of where it's used most, but holistic management is really a decision-making process framework. Um, and it's trying to think holistically, which is a very hard thing to do because in our culture, we, we want to silo everything. We, even in science or no matter what it is, if we can eliminate variables and study things on their own, um, that's how science works, but holistically, like our, our bodies, our ecosystem, everything functions in holes. So you can't take out pieces and, and study one piece. And so like holistic management is trying to make decisions that are socially, economically, and ecologically sound. And it starts with creating a holistic context which is like our guiding light towards all of our decisions. So we want we want to define, you know, what does our what should our future resource be like? What is the quality of life we want to have? What are the forms of production available to us to to create that quality of life and to create the future resource base we want? Um, so that's the first step is defining that holistic context, and then there's 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 a whole um, decision-making framework that's ba- that's broken out that that helps us to think holistically, and you know that 
that's kind of, I've been studying holistic management for a long time and I'm still very, it's very hard to make holistic, to think holistically Mm. because it's not something that we're trained to do that we learn to do. Um, and like we see a lot in policy, like we make a policy to try to address this problem. And in fact, it will have almost the exact opposite effects that we're trying to do because most of the time policies aren't, aren't thought of holistically. And so even with our day-to-day decisions, like trying to, trying to think, um, that triple bottom line and, and into the future. And, and so that's, that's a real broad stroke explanation of holistic management. And was this sort of, I don't really know much about sort of the history of farming or agriculture, but was this sort of how things were originally and then things got out of whack when money was involved in corporations or, or was there always just this sort of lack of knowledge of how to regeneratively, (laughs) if you think about, um, Mesopotamia, the fertile crescent, Mm -hmm. that was the most fertile place on the earth. Now it's a complete desert. And I believe that was before the use of money. And, Mm. um, you know, it's, it's kind of like this understanding of nature that, we have the opportunity now to use this knowledge that's coming out. In fact, I studied soil science in college and, and we studied a lot about the physical and chemical properties of soil. And that was like it. Well, now all we study is the biological components of soil because soil is living. There's, there's more microorganisms in one teaspoon of soil than there are humans on planet earth. Like it's, and biology can drive, physical properties biology can drive chemical properties of soil and so i guess what i'm saying is 20 years ago when i was in college we didn't even talk about the livingness of the soil and now it's it's like the driving force of of soil and that's new knowledge so it's kind of like this frontier of understanding that we're that we're breaching into this regenerative movement that wasn't available not too long ago, but now it's available. And now people working with nature and making holistic decisions are truly transforming landscapes for the better. And it's, it's pretty fun, uh, ride to be on, I guess. Yeah, I can imagine. And for Kelly, for you, when you sort of came upon this holistic form of, was there any sort of like hesitance on your part or like that process that I was talking about, sort of realizing that maybe you were looking at it in the wrong way. Like what was that sort of transition like for you? Or was it just like, yep, this makes total sense. I'm totally embracing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, that really was more how it was reading through the textbook that Alan wrote. He just puts the pieces together, you know, and he doesn't take credit for the pieces, but he does take credit for putting the pieces together. Mm. And, you know, for me, and I think for a lot of people, we have a lot of people come for tours and we talk about, holistic management, but it's, you know, when you're talking about the ecology, when you talk about, you know, how the great herds of bison used to move across the landscape with their pack hunting predators, people get that. They get how, oh yeah, how the grasses, how all those pieces have to work together to have an intact whole. And so that, those sorts of pieces, is that's what really helped me to know it as truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do you feel like, obviously there's a lot of people still not 
managing their land in this sense. Do you think that's more than just tradition or is it fear or is it, I mean, like how much of what you're doing is tied to this idea of climate, right? Cause for me, that was a huge part of it. Like mm -hmm. that we can probably feed more people <laughs> and have this soil that's sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Like, do you think part of the hesitance to embrace that is just not seeing the full process of how these things are all connected or where the hesitancy is for people? Answer that? <laughs> sure. I'd love to answer that. It was interesting. Last night we were sitting at the table with people from all over the world. And to me, it was just like a real eye opener that, you know, there are agro agricultural businesses, you know, multinational, international businesses that have major influence on every farmer in the world. Because they happen to help write policy. They, you know, make the rules for the government. And so what I think is the biggest hindrance is like this entrenchment that the government and the corporations have on, on agricultural people. For example, you know, farming is a tough way to make a living. Mm. Um, and so there is a lot of um, help available through the government. But if you're not spraying fertilizer, spraying weeds, using all these agrochemicals, then, then your insurance isn't viable. So we have a system that locks farmers and ranchers into a completely non-sustainable system. And they're trapped by it. And I believe many more farmers and ranchers recognize that they're trapped in this and want to find a way out, but they, they don't see the way out because that if, if they're going to get their government check, they have to keep doing what the agrochemical companies are telling the policy writers to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, to me, the biggest thing is, is, is governments and, and, uh, and how I look at that is, because I don't want to come off as a total, uh, anti-government person, even though I am, but, um, <laughs> um, now I lost my train. Well, okay. Here's how I look at it. Nature is our model for everything that we do. Currently all these, these global agricultural companies and governments are, are centralized. They, they have these huge influences on vast areas of land. There is no organism or no model in nature, anything like that. Nothing. I mean, an aspen grove can can cover miles and miles because they can be all the same organisms. They're connected under the roots. But other than that, in nature, there is no centralization. Everything is decentralized. And, and you know, I think we put, especially millennials, maybe put a lot of hope on on a government entity a centralized entity that that can solve all the problems and i think it's actually the exact opposite that we need to be looking for like how can we decentralize how can we work as families as church groups as communities as you know smaller smaller units making local local decisions 
So yeah, I think I think that's probably the biggest hindrance to to why holistic management isn't isn't more adopted. And what gave you like the faith and motivation to to manage the land this way? That's something I have to do every day. <laughs> no, I mean, of course, seeing seeing the land transform as a young person, you know, was huge. But even ourselves, you know, we we make positive impacts and improve sequestering more carbon, you know, growing more product, more diverse species of plants, giving more wildlife habitat, growing more beef, more lamb. Um, but it's still not an easy way to make a living. Um, and, and so I guess it's like the faith comes with, I don't know if that's a good question. You answer. Yeah. To me is it's simply doing the right thing. Right. When you understand that a plant needs to fully recover before it's grazed a second time, you, you feel really uncomfortable if you have to go in and graze it before it's ready. Because you know that's a detriment to the plant and the overall ecosystem. So for me, it's having these tools and knowing that they are the, a benefit to the ecology. And so not using them would be the wrong thing to do. Yeah. So can we talk about like if there's a way to sort of summarize this process? Like what is the ecology that we're talking about? What is the holistic aspect of it? Like if you can talk about how one part, like some of your livestock is interacting with the ground. Like what is this process that Alan Savory sort of put all together? How does that mm-hmm. work? I'm, I don't want to, Bobby may have talked about the four key insights of holistic management. Well, you can repeat it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so I think talking about the four key insights is what really puts all these pieces together for people. Don't you? Mm-hmm. And it's, Anyway, it could be difficult to condense into a conversation. Yeah. yeah. And that's a challenge we have as practitioners of holistic management is is explaining this whole of decision-making process in right. a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the challenge. Well, it could be a little more than a nutshell. Okay. We have some time. Okay. <laughs> you know, the four key insights, the, this is kind of the ecological piece mm-hmm. that Alan put together. But the first one, simply holism, which Bill spoke to, that... Everything consists, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And as we, as a society, I think we are better and better at at looking more holistically. Or maybe the people in my bubble are. Mm. Holistic medicine, uh, holistic management, you know, that that's something. Ecology itself is a more holistic look at, you know, from a science perspective. So the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So we can't compartmentalize if we're trying to come up with solutions. So that's the first key insight. The second is the brittleness scale. And that is climate or landscapes around the world are on a continuum of, of this brittleness scale, uh, being from being very non brittle, which would be like a rainforest to being extremely brittle, which would be like the Sahara desert. And it's based on the year round humidity and temperature and what it really comes down to is biological decay. So how is biological decay happening? How often in a rainforest a tree dies and it melts right back into the forest, right? You've got biological decay happening year-round, all the time. It's, it's just, it's happening. 
so that system is a not is in a non-brittle environment, mm. and so that's the key, that biological decay in the Sahara, or you know the Arctic. You there's not enough moisture to sustain biological activity, or the temperatures are too extreme for that. And in the West, we irrigated landscapes are a little bit different, but we're it's very brittle. The West we have limited moisture. Uh, and then extreme cold, too, that limits the biological decay. So if a tree dies in the West, it will stand for decades and decades and decades. If a grass plant dies in the West, it stands for decades and decades and decades. So the mineral cycling is not happening. But lo and behold, nature's model is the ruminant, because biological decay and moisture exist in the rumen year-round. So ruminants are the bison and cows and sheep and wildebeest and uh, caribou and, you know, these animals that have the miracle rumen that turns grass that's indigestible to humans into beautiful milk and meat and fiber. So that's the brittleness scale. And, and so the, the key insight from that brittleness scale is... I get, Rest, meaning no grazing in a non-brittle environment, that environment will improve. Rest in a brittle environment, the landscape will go backwards. Mm. Like brittle environments are 100% dependent on grazing animals to cycle that carbon, right? So the plants, this is all basic stuff, but plants are the only thing we have so far that takes carbon dioxide out of the air and makes it into a stable carbon product. But that, what she was talking about, dead vegetation standing, if it starts turning gray, still standing there, that's that carbon slowly releasing back into the atmosphere. It's oxidizing. It's a chemical breakdown of that carbon that the plant stored. But through the rumens, through the grazing animals, we cycle that carbon back into the soil surface so it's available for, for more plant growth. So, um, you know, we have a lot of classic examples in the West. Go to any national park in the West, Utah, Arches, you know, those kind of parks where where grazing has been um, removed for a long time. Those landscapes are desertifying. And so you can't even walk on the... the uh, Cryptobionic. cryptobionic soil like that's the most living thing they have and you're not supposed to step on that because they've removed the grazing animals which are essential to the health of of brittle environments so and that's so that continuum you know it's it's pretty obvious right yeah there's a brittle and non-brittle but as european descendants europeans are european is mostly a non-brittle environment Eastern United States is non-brittle environment. Coming west, we try to apply the same land management principles, and it doesn't work. Right. So that is a very important key insight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So number three. <laughs> number three is the predator-prey relationship, which I kind of spoke to earlier. But that is that these great herds of ruminants that moved across the landscape in these brittle environments always moved with their pack-hunting predators. So they were kept bunched on the move, out of the riparian areas um, and concentrated so their dung and urine and hooves you know, were a garden and a fertility tool for the landscape. And they wouldn't come back to where they had dunged and urined 
to graze, right, until that was fresh again and the plants had fully recovered. So in the United States, we systematically eliminated all of our pack hunting predators, the wolves, as well as the great herds of ruminants, the bison. Uh, and we, anyway, we see over time that that has led to great degradation in our, in our landscapes. And then the last key insight is about the plant itself, and its timing is everything. And that means that a plant, grasses specifically, are designed to be grazed, right? They evolved with these great herds. And a plant has as much biomass above as it does below the surface. So we, if we have a healthy plant, it's got it's a beautiful green solar panel, right? Collecting energy from the sun, which is a miracle on its own, and sending you know the carbon, the energy down into its roots and and growing. And if if you have a ruminant coming along, takes a bite out of that grass, that's perfect because that plant, if it didn't get knocked over or bitten, it wouldn't be able to continue to grow. So that plant, that works great. But the plant has to kill off part of its roots in order to uh, prepare to send energy up to grow that leaf back again. So you have this bite at the top, which leads to kind of a bite in the soil. And that's wonderful. That bite in the soil that's left behind feeds all of the soil biology. Mm. So what overgrazing is, is when the animal comes and takes a second bite before the plant is recovered before it's been able to replenish its roots completely. And if it comes back a third time, you know, you can see over time it will kill the plant. So overgrazing is a function of time, the time the animal's exposed to the plant versus animal numbers. And animals will choose that regrowth if they're left in the same paddock for a long period of time. They will choose that regrowth over anything else. And so... You have one cow in a thousand acre pasture, she can she will overgraze mm. if she's there too long, say she's in there for a month. Versus our model is we have a hundred or a thousand animals on well hundred hundred animals on one acre mm. for one day versus one cow on a hundred acres for thirty days. Right. And so that timing is everything is so important. We think of you know, overgrazing as a function of animal numbers, um, the forest. That's what's driven policy, mm -hmm. like recognizing the land is not healthy. So what we've done for the last 150, 200 years is say, well, there must be too many animals. Let's remove animals. And the land continues to go backwards. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that sums up the four key insights. And, and it is all very... It, it, pretty simple stuff, you know, but it's 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 kind of counterintuitive to some of the things that we've understood for a long time, and so it's a little bit hard to change. In fact, like when Chloe talks about traditional ranchers here, you know, like right now they have their cattle sc scattered out on big vast areas, and they're making hay, and those animals, you know, are on the same pastures, overgrazing certain plants over. Some plants are never being grazed, so they're being overrested, which is as detrimental as being overgrazed. So in the same pasture, same area, you can have overgrazing happening and overrest happening. And so what we're trying to emulate is like that old herd that was being chased by those bunchly 
it was densely bunched, chased by pack hunting predators, try to get a uniform grazing on all plants, get them off, and let all those plants fully recover before we come back. Mm-hmm. And the other, I think just the the big picture point is that it comes down to management. Um, sustainable dish, Diane Rogers, mm-hmm. is she's got a beautiful slogan that it's not the cow, it's the how. The cow is not causing degradation. The way she's managed is, is leading to degradation. And yes, livestock can cause extreme degradation if they're managed improperly. Yet it's livestock that we believe are really the only solution to widespread uh, carbon sequestration and regeneration of our brittle environments. Yeah. Reversing desertification, reversing, basically. Reversing the spread of deserts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what is... So many things to talk about based on that, but in terms of like the human component of this, is what you is what you guys think feel that you're doing and are doing is to sort of like take the role of these sort of natural systems and processes that were happening that can't happen now because we don't have the livestock and we don't have the the hunting the whatever, predators. predators, yeah. yeah. Um, or is there simply like this gray area where you know I think agriculture is often looked at as problematic right like humans came in and we farmed the land and there and everything went to crap after that mm-hmm. um but do you feel that there's this like aside from taking the place of these like predatory animals and the herds a human component to this that's actually part of the process yes <laughs> yeah. You, yeah you answer that you <laughs> well i think i mean obviously humans are the most dominating species on the planet right and I don't think that's by accident, you know, and we're also given logic and reason and, and each other. And, you know, and we can, we can do it either way. We can be destructive and degrading, or we can, or we can do things regeneratively and, and abundantly. And, you know, we believe in abundance. Like there's, there, the earth's resources are very vast our our management capabilities have changed dramatically over the years. Um, I think that yes, we are the best and most capable managers of the earth because a, a big tendency is to say let nature do it. You know, let's get let's get out of the way and let nature do it. Well, that's not possible anymore because we've removed so many of the components of nature. So we are nature. We are part of nature. Mm-hmm. Humans are natural creatures. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it's it's taking that that responsibility of being the dominant species and doing it well, not feeling guilty because we're that. Yes, we've made numerous mistakes over the generations, but are we learning from those or moving forward or are we just going to kick ourselves cuz we're bad bad on the earth? We can't do that. And and, you know, we believe that everyone should have the opportunity to life and, and to peace and liberty. And um, by managing with nature, there's plenty of room for everybody. Yeah. And almost sort of saying we're part of the problem actually sort of removes the responsibility exactly. of doing it properly. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So let I'd love to, like, dispel some myths. <laughs> that I hear constantly. And I I was saying before we started recording, like I'm, 
I'm pretty surprised, and I don't know why I sort of fell into this and understood it in a certain way. I started eating a paleo diet before it was cool. Um, so there was that sort of understanding of how I think meat worked with my body in a way that felt normal and natural, and I understood it. And then I saw Alan Savory's TED Talk, and like all the pieces just came together in a way that, I don't know, felt really self-explanatory and obvious. Um, and yet I'm constantly surrounded by people who I think are extremely intelligent and smart and intuitive and like to think about things, and yet are still of this mindset that animals are the problem. And there's so many different things I want to talk about, but, and maybe Chloe, you can talk about this too, because you're younger, but this whole, like everyone nowadays thinks being a vegetarian is the way to save. Do you get that from people your age? Yeah. Yeah. What do you say in response? <laughs> I don't think I've gotten it directly asked to me yet, no. but yeah, that's a big problem. And like that mentality mentality that being a vegetarian will save the planet and in a certain way it could if the animals were being managed incorrectly and we kept repeating that cycle and then you didn't support eating meat that could that makes sense but on the other hand if being a vegetarian and the manage uh if being a vegetarian, but the animals are being managed correctly, then you're hindering the ability for the land to be better. Because we, the meat, like, to, oh geez, <laughs> doing great. Let me think. Like, if everyone in the whole planet was a vegetarian, then there'd be a bunch of animals that the cycle of life wouldn't be happening. Right. So therefore we couldn't like continue it. It eventually probably come to a stop or something versus if the man animals are managed correctly and people are eating that meat that is healthy for the land because it's managed in a way that regenerates to make better and it's healthy for the people because that meat is 10 times more nutrients dense, all of those things than like coming off of a feedlot, then that is why being a vegetarian in, when the animals are raised correctly is not all okay. Right. And it, do you think that's where part of this myth is coming from? Is like, I mean, I see this in studies all the time when people just say things like meat is not n nutritional or bad and they're grouping together feedlot meat with grass-fed beef and to me like those are like completely different foods yeah. it's nonsensical yeah i mean they definitely have to be separated because i am in partial agreement that you should not eat meat coming out of feedlots and that is environmentally destructive um i mean the reason why it's environmentally destructive is because we're growing crops for for livestock and so i like to think of it this way i've read this over and over is um you know one argument for not eating meat is, is because you're you're killing an animal well if you're a vegetarian you're killing a lot yeah because in order to grow any sort of crop the entire existing ecosystem whether it's grass usually like the tall grass prairie is what now grows all the corn was the best tall grass prairie in the world deepest soils in the world most fertile um but 
in order to grow a crop, you have to remove all of that. So you're killing microbiology in the soil. You're killing all the birds that could potentially be nesting in that area. You're killing the foxes that could could be there eating the birds or you know so basically to be a vegetarian you have to you have to create a a whole ecosystem of itself by destroying the old ecosystem the existing ecosystem versus in livestock agriculture where we're sitting right now surrounded by mountains most of this land would never be farmable but yet we can regeneratively graze that enhance the the natural biodiversity that's out there and have a incredibly healthy product for humans at, at the end of the day mm-hmm. so you know if you if you kill a pig or if you want a pork chop you kill a pig if you want a steak you kill a cow if you want vegetables you kill an entire ecosystem i think that to me is and also any sort of farming enterprise now we we get the fertilizer for that through a bag or you know going to the store you know you can't crop something without going and get getting some sort of nutrients to replace what you're removing to feed the people i mean traditionally all all agriculture happened with cropping and animals together like animals actually provide the fertility for a cropping system and i see that you know for the last 50 or 100 years we've separated that there's like there's farmers that grow crops over here and there's livestock people that do that over here and now we're getting back to to rejoining us because we both need each other like for example we in the winter time we take our cattle to an organic farm that is growing vegetables right now and then he plants cover crops underneath his his cash crops and then he has our cattle come in in the winter we graze the cover crops which stay green in the winter which is a huge plus for us Mm. and he's cycling all his crop aftermath through our animals Um, all the dung and urine is fertilizing his fields for the next year's crop um, and so that's that's kind of this model that we're moving back into of, of marrying the farmer and the rancher again instead of being separate. And so, uh, you know, nature doesn't farm without animals like it's it's a it unless you're going to the store and buying fertility. Yeah. And what what let's talk about I was someone asked me about this the other day and I didn't feel like I explained it eloquently, um, but about methane right that like cattle are producing farting Mm -hmm. and producing methane and Mm -hmm. that's ruining the environment so what we need is less cattle yep (laughs) well first off there was a lot more grazing animals around here than there are right now um secondly yes if if those animals are in a feedlot releasing methane it is going into the atmosphere in our pastures out here we have soil biology living organisms in the soil that as those cattle are belching or farting those microorganisms are actually absorbing that and putting it into the soil so it's a totally non it's it's actually helping our ecosystem because we have that life in the soil that's grabbing that methane right back and putting it where it needs to be in the soil so yeah that's that's really not a valid argument. Yeah. 
Well, and it's like, it's just failing to look at it contextually. And I think that's what I sort of said. Like, but if the, it's all about the relationship between these two things. So yeah, yeah. if it's feedlots and it's just the methane, then fine. But if you're having those same animals on different healthy soil, that's regenerative, then it's like sequestering and it, it works out to be a positive effect. Rather that's than, right. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And there's, I mean, that's my favorite thing to do is when I put animals in a fresh pasture is to watch them, how they go select the plants they want, watching them graze and, you know, all those things that are happening out there when they urinate, um, you know, when they urinate, for example, I can go show you because we're still building soil fertility. One day I don't want to see these spots, but I can show you every spot where a cow urinated because it's it's very usable nitrogen right there for the plants to take up and and so i mean i just think that animals if we silo it and think of animals only as a source of feeding humans but really animals are this very integral part of the ecosystem that are needed and they need to be managed well and like to me i've always enjoyed the ecosystem services of the livestock and the meat is just a good side benefit. Right. Well, and you can have and feel this way and believe in these systems without eating the meat. It's just like recognizing that yeah. everything is tied together. Yeah. So, and what about like this industrial fake meat situation and their claims around how that's more environmentally sustainable? <laughs> well, first off, it's mostly soy based and soy is responsible for much soil degradation, much roundup. Like I've, I've read that all these, these, um, fake meats, they all have traces of roundup in them. You know, they're all from farming systems that are totally unsustainable. So I just don't understand how, yeah, if you're comparing it to a feedlot beef, maybe it, it might be better, but still it's dependent upon this totally unsustainable farming system. Yeah. And there's traces of all sorts of crazy chemicals and all sorts of lab. Like we, we eat a very um, wholesome diet. Like we don't, if you're buying in the middle aisles of the grocery store, right, which take up most of it, that's all processed food. It's man-made stuff that we really don't know the effects. I mean, just a pound of beef, we know that's pretty simple, you know, there's no added nothing in that. Or or a potato, you know, if if it's grown organically. So, yeah, I would not put that in my body. Yeah. Are there any other sort of myths that you guys come upon regularly that you feel like you often have to <laughs> dispel or explain? You've done pretty well. Yeah. I know there is. <laughs> I know there is, but you've done pretty well. Well, good. I try. <laughs> um, so, and you guys do a lot of you're like you're the savory hub is that mm -hmm. is that just in Colorado or no nope, we we are the Colorado hub but the Colorado there's hub. savory hubs all over the world i mm. think they want to have within the next few years have 150 around the world and yeah it's just a place that that demonstrates and educates holistic management in our local contexts so of course our savory hub is going to look a lot different than the one that the people are here from Germany. Um, that's a non-brittle environment, you know, different culture. Everything's going to be different, but we can both still apply and use holistic management for the betterment of our ecosystems, our communities, 
ourselves and and our economies yeah and maybe that just thinking of economy is one one myth that i would like to dispel that alan savory likes to talk about um wealth what is wealth i think many young people and even old people don't even understand what wealth is we think it is is money and money currently is printed out of thin air with no backing of anything it's just somebody decides how much to print and is circulated and truly the only wealth that's available is comes from the sun so that means the more plants that we have with the larger leaves with densely packed on the soil surface multiple layers vertically um, you know the more leaves capturing solar energy the more wealth we're capturing so that's one form of wealth is straight from the sun so that's where we make our living we're sun farmers basically um, and then there's mineral wealth that comes out of the ground whether we're talking oil or gold or that or or what comes out of the oceans so you know we've we've totally taken the idea of economy away from from the resources and and made everyone believe in this dollar that actually has zero basis and there will be big changes happening with that soon um much to the dismay of Americans because right now we enjoy the world reserve currency of the dollar. If if that changes, America's going to have some rude awakening because right now we don't pay for any anything that we import because we can just print dollars where every other country in the world actually has to make those dollars to make a trade. So, I mean, that to me is probably the biggest skew we have in all of this. Um, like I would be happier with a, with a, with a currency that is attached to carbon, you know, maybe that, that's what everyone's talking about now. Well, let's, let's attach our currency to carbon. You know, what would that look like? It used to be attached to gold, which to me makes a lot more sense than what it is now, mm. but maybe carbon would be something to attach our currency to. But I think that's just a myth that controls a lot of our lives and nobody thinks about it. Um, and like, we're constantly trying to capture more wealth through, through green leaves. And, and we see that, you know, we see when, when we're, we're capturing more wealth, we can graze more cattle, we can provide more wildlife feed, we can, all those things that, that, that capturing more and more solar energy. And that, anyway, I could talk a lot about just capturing solar energy because that's, yeah. that's what, that's, that's our source of wealth. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too. We've been on this trip for a few months, and we drove through a lot of, like, sort of rural uh, Montana and Idaho specifically. And it was really interesting to, like, see how much land, former ranches, farms, etc., were for sale just over and over and over and over again. And what I sort of had the thought, because I sort of see this reflected in my generation, that there's this interesting sort of generational turnover that I feel like is happening, where like a lot of, I think, older people who perhaps were managing their land in the traditional way, like it's, they can't figure it out anymore. It's not sustainable. It's too hard to make a living. And this land is up for sale. And then sort of simultaneous to this, I'm sitting down with all these people that I know or that I'm meeting for the first time. 
And I would say like 85% of them, they're like, yeah, my dream is just to like buy a bunch of land and start this sort of sustainable or regenerative community where there's gardens and we're raising animals. And um, I, I'm curious if you sort of see a shift in that, whether it's generational or with the people, the other uh, ranchers and farmers that you talk to that like, I guess maybe I'm I'm hoping there's hope or optimism in some way that people are sort of starting to figure this out. Um and, and I just had a sense that that might be what's happening and how cool that would be if these mm-hmm. sort of younger people were taking over this land and yeah. starting to do what needed to be done. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, it is. We're coming up on, because most farmers and ranchers are in their 60s, like average age. And you're right. I mean, the, I mean I've been hearing this for a while and I still am not sure, but there is supposed to be a huge transfer of land ownership as Mm. this older generation of farmers and ranchers are ready to retire they didn't romance their children into wanting to do that business so they have to sell the place and hopefully yes there's this big group of young people that are just like chomping at the bit to um to to manage that land but i guess that's another big myth like we own zero land we have a ranching operation we own zero land and that's oftentimes the biggest barrier for young people to get into agriculture mm. is they think they need to go buy the land. No, learn how to manage land and you will be in demand to manage land. You don't have to own it. And Can you that's, elaborate on that? So how does that work? <laughs> well, we lease it all. I yeah. mean, and so like here we're in kind of a Gunnison is a tourism economy for the most part. Um, you know, it's very beautiful mountains, fishing, hunting, the people that can afford to buy this land are not the ones that are going to be ranching and farming it. Hmm. So it's like an investment, it's a hunting retreat, it's whatever it may be. Um, they need somebody to manage that land. And so most of our arrangements are just a lease like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to run cattle, sheep, we're going to irrigate, we're going to, um, make your land better we'll pay you x amount um and for the right to do that and most of the time like some leases we have we don't have to pay for that because they recognize we're doing a good job we're keeping it in agriculture some people want to have an income from that lease so they can keep their property in agricultural tax status Mm. because that's a big difference whether it's ag land or or residential or recreational property. Um, so yeah, like this property that we're sitting on right now is owned by the city of Gunnison. The city of Gunnison bought this property because our flood irrigation recharges the aquifer that the, the town uses, everybody uses. And so they they bought this in 1997 to preserve that recharge of the aquifer. So that happens to involve agriculture. Like nobody would be irrigating if we weren't producing something out here. Mm-hmm. So, but the city's not going to run this ranch. You know, they, they put it up for bid. We leased it. And, um, and I have another good friend that he, he works with an older couple. They still own the ranch. I think they still own the cattle for the most part. And he manages it all. And they have a good, I don't know, all the ins and outs of the relationship. But I know that's uh, something that's happening more and more. There is older couples or that they, they need to retire, but they still have this ranch. And there's probably a young person that would love to work with that old person and, and get something going. So, yeah, that's, 
that's just it like in in fact so you take it to the next level you don't need to own own land to be a rancher or farmer and to, to be a cattleman you don't have to own cattle like one arrangement we have is we bring cattle in in the summer that are not ours we get paid by how much weight we put on them and then they're gone so all these things that that young people look at is huge barriers to to getting into it they don't even exist it's it's changing your thinking changing your paradigms like you don't need to own the land you don't need to own the cattle and you could still make a living from both yeah and aside from getting involved like hands-on what would you recommend to i guess anybody who wants to sort of support this movement and this type of land management well first off know what you're putting in your body and where it's coming from and how it was raised. Um, you know, if you can work directly with a farmer and rancher where you can look them in the eye and they can tell you what happened to produce this, like that's the best. Many people can't do that. But like we sell our meat on the internet, you know, we have our story up there. We have how we're doing things. We can make that connection through emails and, you know, just our website and, and, and we can guarantee people quality meat to eat. So I think that's the first thing, like support it with your dollar. You know, everybody eats three times a day. Go ahead and because, you know, a lot of times organic or regenerative raised food, it costs more money. Well, yes, it does. But if you really weigh out the costs, you probably aren't going to have to go to the doctor's office as often. You're probably not going to have all these other issues. So it's probably the cheapest health care you can do. Is, is buying good food. Um, and that's first off. And then if you're really interested in it, like go find a farm or a ranch that's doing something that you think you're interested in and go work there for a year or six months and, and uh, immerse yourself in it. Learn and see if it's something you really want to do. Yeah. Are you going to continue doing this, Chloe, when you get older? Yeah. Yeah? I will. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's cool. And are there, like, in terms of um, finding other people in, in different areas, people that do this, are, is there resources online where people can find who? Um, the... Well, just, like, as Savory Hubs, if yeah. you go to, uh, I don't, what is it? Savory Institute. Savory Institute, just their website. They yeah. have, like, a map of all of the different hubs around the world, and those are good people to connect with and then they can because and then the hub can tell you more people within that area i'd say it's a pretty good way to cool yeah or like uh woofer there's different organizations for young people to find places to work on uh woofer is one of them i can't think of what else but yeah there's there's a lot of resources and i think like I've never met somebody that's in regenerative agriculture that isn't more than willing to share everything. Right. And especially the young people that are interested in it. Because that that is a big concern for a lot of people is that there's just not going to be enough young people to to take over it. But I don't think that'll be a problem. Because I think for myself, I just, you know, there's a lot of things we can do on this earth while we're here for a short time. And working with nature providing food for our brothers and sisters like it's a pretty honorable profession yeah i agree 
Um, so lastly, where can people find more about Parker Pastures? And then the other thing that I always ask all my podcast guests is if they could recommend one book to everyone who is listening, (laughs) what might that be? And it can be about this or just anything that was like sort of influential or important to you. Um, okay. Well, first off, parkerpastures.com. Cool. (laughs) Uh, check that out. And then, and we're, and if you want meat delivered to your door, we ship nationwide too. Amazing. Cool. Yep. And book, uh, well, first off, holistic management. Alan is, I think this is his third edition. It's way easier to read than the first one. Um, anyone could pick that book up and start to grasp what holistic management is and how it's contextually usable, whether you're in agriculture or running a nonprofit organization of mm. some sort. It's very relevant stuff. Um, so that's my first book recommendation. And right now I haven't finished it, but I'm reading Call of the Reed Warbler by, uh, the third person on really? this podcast to recommend that. Yeah. I was like, okay, I really need to read that book. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot to read, but yeah. oh man, it's interesting. And that just shows you how a holistic management is even just, it is sort of like the overriding decision-making process that you should be using, but there's so many other like permaculture, uh, Right. I can't even think of it all, but there's so many other tools available to us to like truly transform our earth. And that's, that's where we are. You know, it's nothing is don't ever lose hope because we have so many solutions that are available. It's just scaling those solutions up. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have any books to add? I can't think of a good one that, <laughs> oh, other than the two that he's mentioned. Yeah. yeah I can't think of another awesome. really good one. <laughs> Well, those are pretty good ones. So. Yep. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time. Thank this you. Thank really you. fun conversation. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that. Um, it is worth noting, uh, if you are interested in this topic and um, the work that Alan Savory is doing, he has a TED Talk that you can just Google and find. I don't know. I watched this TED Talk maybe, from, I don't know. I don't know how long ago it was, but a while, five, six years ago. Um, and it really just brought together a lot of sort of intuitive thoughts and beliefs I had into like a coherent, uh, educated narrative. So, um, highly recommend that. Um, today I am going to play you out with a song called Colorado because I'm in Colorado and for whatever reason, I keep coming back to Colorado. Um, I was here a year ago. I was here last August and then I came back in September. Um, and obviously I've been here for the past month. It's, it's interesting because, um, I actually just had a birthday last weekend and I spent my birthday last year in Colorado as well. And it's always really interesting to look back, uh, year to year and see how things cycle and grow and evolve, especially when you happen to be in the same place. Like I cannot tell you how many things have changed (laughs) since I was here last year. Um, anyway, this is a really beautiful, um, song, no lyrics, just music today, but, um, I heard it the other day while sitting by the Colorado river and, um, made me feel all the Colorado feels. Oh, and it's by an artist, uh, called Lotus. So enjoy. Um, again, if you want to support the show, just leave me some stars, a review on iTunes, hit subscribe or send an episode to your friends. Uh, greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to all you lovely souls next week. Mm-hmm.